Alors, cher monsieur, vous volez mes roses. Vous volez mes roses, qui sont ce que j'aime le mieux au monde. Vous jouez de ma chance, car vous pouviez tout prendre chez moi, sauf mes roses. Il se trouve que ce simple vol mérite la mort. Pareils prodiges sont-ils possibles Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. Je m'appelle Ian. I'm his dad. He's my son. I'm not going to attempt that in French. <laughs> and uh, and we've watched another movie. We have. It's still October, so it's still our our Halloween theme. And I think I know what our Halloween theme is this year. Well, you might have expected me to show you more Universal monster movies, and and those will be coming. We have a whole collection now. But that's not our theme for Halloween 2021. What do you think our theme is? Is our theme spooky castles? Yes. Our theme is spooky castles. Yes. It's like the HGTV special I always wanted. <laughs> so last uh, episode, we, we talked about the uh, 1931 Dracula starring uh, Bela Lugosi. And we jump ahead about a decade and a half now. Because we are talking about the 1946 Babel et the Bye. Beauty and the Beast by Jean Cocteau. Oh, goodness. French poet and filmmaker. And uh, I, knew, I knew I wanted to include this in the podcast at some point, and this seemed like a, a good month to do it. I'm delighted that you chose this, because it's one of the rare instances where I knew about this film fully before you even brought it up oh, is that right yes how how did that come about okay so back in the day i watched a lot of online reviewers uh comics movies tv shows games all sorts of stuff and in a rare instance two of the ones that i watched the most of a theme park slash disney reviewer tony goldmark and a, an art film and cinema as presentation reviewer, Kyle Calgren, did a crossover where they compared Jean Cocteau's Belle et la Bette and Disney's Beauty and the Beast in a big three-part epic YouTube experience. And this is one of the things I rewatched over and over again because I thought it was so well done. But it means I'd seen... An entire breakdown of this film's structure and plot, and a full comparison review. It's it's a silly review with which has some jokes in it, and has entire musical numbers in it because they decided to just have fun with it. But I'd gotten an analysis of this film before, and I was very intrigued to actually get to see it now that you were showing it to me in full. So I was excited, but it was kind of wild that like. Oh, this thing I know from my my internet surfing and video watching history pops up in your history too, and I mean, I want to know how you knew of it in that <laughs> sense. So this is exciting. Well, that's really interesting because I think you have shown me some of their stuff online, but I don't think I've ever seen that analysis of this movie. 
I've so got... I'm going to have to find that and watch that. Oh, well, well, I've referenced it, so it's going to be in the links and yeah, in we'll our description of the episode. And I will also have to show you this three-part then. Absolutely. Uh, I know about this because uh, I saw this, I believe it was when I was in college. So this is in the later end of our our time range for this podcast. Uh, and I first saw it, I'm sure that it was late at night on a PBS station in New York. So probably it was Channel 13. And what I saw was a little bit of the middle of this movie. Starting with, essentially, Belle's arrival at the castle. Oh, really? That's and where that it starts you? wonderfully spooky set of, of sequences there. And that just enthralled me enough that I spent the next year, I, I took a little while to figure out what this was and going and looking at the, the TV listings in the newspaper to find out what Channel 13 had been showing at one o'clock in the morning. And then spent the next year hoping that somebody would broadcast it again. And eventually they did. And I think it was Channel 13 again. So I got to see the whole thing. And the entire movie didn't turn out to be like that amazing magical sequence in the middle. But still, it was a captivating movie, and I'm glad that I sought it out, and I'm glad that I saw it. And that's probably the last time that I saw it was back then. Oh, really? So I haven't seen this since uh, the early 80s. Wow. And thinking about it, there's a, been a, as much time between the first time I saw this movie and now as between when this movie was made <laughs> and when I first saw it. That's one of those painful comparisons there. Oh, don't don't do the math. I'm the guy who does so much of the math sometimes. Don't do the math, I'm telling you. Don't try that right now. So this is, it's, it's a French movie, now considered a, a classic of, of French filmmaking, about this, or adapted from this 18th century French fairy tale. And it has a way of evoking magic that I think is amazing. And it's one of those things that made me realize really impressed upon me how film can be weird and otherworldly and evoke this kind of magic while still telling a story and while not necessarily using anything that today we would consider very sophisticated filming techniques. It was very interesting and judicious use of a few very clever techniques, and the rest of it was just like any other art, combination of composition, materials, thought and care going into producing each and every scene, each frame. This movie is really good at one of the things I noticed a lot seeing it in full that little clips don't show you. It is amazing at figuring out how to use dark black tones in a black and white film to imply infinite space so well. Hallways that only the things you're supposed to notice are bright in color so that the actual definition of where walls begin and end in the castle is so hard to tell sometimes. And it adds to that unreality. Or just using really, really smart shot reverse shot techniques that we're so used to, even back then, relating, you know, f two people talking or a thing re being related to another but if you switch out the reverse shot, when you snap back to it with something else, 
you are absolutely thrown by that mental disconnect of, wait, thing changed. What? What thing is different? Oh, goodness, thing changed. And you do that with just the right flourish, and it becomes magical transformation. And it's disorienting in the in a way that conveys the disorientation that characters like Belle or like her brother and, and his friend would have experienced upon entering these grounds in this castle. It it gives us a sense of what that felt like by being so jarring and so um, so disorienting. Without taking us out of the movie, it's not, oh, there's a clever technique. It still keeps us in that story. And you're right about that use of very large black spaces. It's hard to put my finger on exactly why it works, but there are things that could very, very easily seem extremely stagey, even for a 1940s movie, and therefore kind of take us out of the movie. Instead, when you surround them with some of these subtle film techniques and some of the surrealism, you're right, it, instead of seeming boxed in by a limited set on a stage, you get the feeling of that blackness represents a, a practically infinite amount of space. This castle is as big as its master wants it to be at any given time. Well, a lot of that comes from the opening scene. This film starts out with... A lot of really nice setup in this opening moment with this fully staged, fully environmental, very lived in and cluttered in a good way house set for the family with the father and Belle's two sisters, which shock of all shocks to anyone who knows just the Disney version. Yes, sisters, narrative plot, variations on the story. It's good. But it sets up all of this, and it's this cluttered environment with plenty of bushes and trees and walls and buildings, and it feels so much more like a historical production, like it's got that tone and that setting in that place, so that later when they pare down the amount of complexity in the Beast's Garden a little, with thinner, smaller walls... And then when you get inside the castle and it's this minimal stage setting, the lack of detail becomes this, this unreality to it because it said, did so much early on to fill the screen with things and people and images and, and textures early on, just so that contrast is hitting you harder. Ironically, it is that kind of sense of emptiness in so much of the Beast's domain that gives you the sense of wealth. Yeah, it's the, clean and pure. Yeah. There's there is something weirdly Apple Store in terms of the minimalism <laughs> of the Beast's Castle. I want the next Apple Store redo <laughs> to reference this movie. I want candelabra for uh, being held by disembodied arms in the walls. Oh yeah, just just disembodied yeah. arm just flips out the hey, latest Siri, iPhone. Bring that light over here. <laughs> yes. Oh goodness. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's the fact that he doesn't have to have a yard that's filled with goats is a sign of how rich he is. I like that. Exactly. And and I alluded to one of the really cool things that grabbed my attention the first time I saw any scenes from this movie. The castle itself is alive. It's it's the castle is a magic castle. It's not a haunted castle. 
it is it is magically alive so that all the 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 light comes from candelabra that are being held by what appear to be disembodied human arms set into wall into the walls the statues look around and breathe and and smugly look at the uh, owner of the castle <laughs> when they notice him uh wanting to go see his new girlfriend um somebody we um we were introduced to uh, a couple of Halloween seasons ago on the podcast makes an appearance thing from the Adams family. Yes. <laughs> there's in the dining table, there's a disembodied hand that reaches up from nowhere and, uh, from, from the surface of the table and serves. And I couldn't help on this watch thing. It's thing. It's thing. That right there is another excellent scene to show the wealth and prestige here. It's this silent scene of this guy, of, of the father, of Belle's father, freaking out being in the castle. He's been brought into the place. He's sitting down and such. It's about sh- taking so very long to show this disembodied hand carefully pour him a very full glass of wine. And it's like, here is silent luxury of beautiful plates and generously giving of like a, of a a filled cup just being the most gracious host you can and it's all this like subtle careful calm bizarre hospitality that is just so powerful in there and this for someone who just wandered in from the fog on a dark night in a dangerous forest the, the true idea of hospitality and everything's going fine until, as anybody who knows the story uh, will know, he s- takes a rose. He takes a rose uh, to bring back to his daughter Belle, and that's the one thing his host, the Beast, cannot abide. And then that's when we first see the Beast. I will admit the Beast's reveal is a little cheesy with his stepping out from around the corner. It's the it's one of the moments that got me. But yeah, it's that's still... where stagey just remains stagey. I think absolutely. But I still love it. It's 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 a brilliant reveal. And the look of the beast in this production is great. It's, it is sort of like a lion, but also sort of like a wolf. And he's got the, the big animal head and the animal paws with claws. They're usually covered by these large, elaborate gloves. And his manner of dress, it's, everything in this is kind of, I'd say, uh, 17th century sort of look. Maybe yeah. Early 17th century. and. The the beast looks like some combination of a well a lion or a, a wolf, but also some combination of a slightly out of date nobleman and a clown and a Christmas wizard. Yeah, it's this odd combination with these spangles all over his clothing, his jacket and his vest and his huge roughed collar. Oh my goodness, the collar being so roughed, you can see it over the big fluffy. Uh, cat head of hair he's got i can get a little bit too deep into the symbolism here though in that it's it's not a full-on rough it's more of a sunburst kind of appearance oh you want to get into the sun symbology around him as well with all his little embellishments and such and he's a giant cat 
And you get the alchemical concept of the lion that eats the sun being purification of metals, and he's full of magic, creating gemstones and gold and stuff out of everywhere. You can dive in on this. They are <laughs> they are absolutely playing off of the like you want traditional magician of power, giant cat. You can't say no. Boom! It is brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I was I'm like. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I think I raised you right. You're making me very proud right now, bringing in the alchemical symbolism. Oh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> it, it's aqua regia. It's royal water. <laughs> and the beast is... The beast is a character who recognizes his own fallen nature. He has strict rules... But he's very quick, especially once Belle arrives to essentially take her father's place in punishment or in, in penance for having stolen the rose. He says, you know, I should be taking orders from you. I am not the master here. I am, I have a good soul, but I am a beast. That's another part where I was really surprised to get to see the full version because it actually made me think of the root story to a lot of Beauty and the Beast things, from what we know of history. And I was really astounded to see just how many times you get the grand, elaborate, uh, magical world that the Beast has. And you get Belle, who's shown cleaning the house and polishing in this hard worker this th from this lower kind of... Like, she's trying to pull her family up, and they're not listening to what's going on and such. They're this collision of worlds. But he puts her in charge here and is following her and following her leads and wishes and such on many things. Or at least saying that he, he will. And there's even a wonderful moment later on where she's there criticizing him of, like, go clean yourself up, go be presentable, go be... Be the proper man you say you're, you're, you try to present yourself as, and kind of giving him this harsh discussion there. And my mind's just flashing back to the story of Enkidu from the original myth of Gilgamesh and, and Enkidu, and this, you know, wild man brought into society. But instead, his society <laughs> is the, this you know, wild upper crust, and he's kind of brought in to live a life. By some of the mentality of this person who's had to go work a life. And I think what we're seeing there, and I think what this story reflects and is often used to reinforce, is that idea of the feminine influence being a civilizing influence yeah. upon culture and upon individuals. And he's been alone. He's been, his needs have been met by magic and his magic house, but he has had no influence and no reason to be more civilized. He knows how to dress. He knows the basics. But he needs to understand how to be civilized in connection with other human beings. And this feminine influence that he has never had before comes into this home, brings that out, and helps establish that. Absolutely. And... <sighs> And she has her own transformation alongside that, though. Where, oh, absolutely. Where, I mean, not just in literal magical clothes transformations, but there's this shift of posture between them. 
where there's this this uncertainty and this fear from her, and he's very hunched and terrifying. And over time, he's straightening out in the costume and standing taller, and she is wearing everything with a little bit more poise and and they they kind of come to this middle ground together of this this presentation and this pair and this duo and i think the difference there is what we see of her early on back at her home when, where she is kind of a cinderella character oh very much her so. sisters are dressing up and trying to get into parties that they're not welcome at because they're now impoverished because of sh- some shipping accidents and things she is staying at home and trying to keep the home together, but even the way she speaks of it is it is through a sense of duty. She needs to keep the house clean and operating because that's her duty. She can't leave her father to marry her brother's handsome best friend because she can't leave her father. This is her duty. As she settles into her position in the Beast's Magic Castle, it's not her choices are limited by her sense of duty it's she recognizes she has a certain power and she takes responsibility for using that power and that leads to a transformation in her demeanor in her way of dealing with with others that she encounters including the beast including her family when she goes back to visit them towards the end That's what changes her as a person, I think, is that she has this agency. With that comes a certain kind of power, and with that and her code comes responsibility, Not which is not the same thing as duty. Responsibility suggests that she's making more decisions than pure duty. Yeah, I like that. It definitely definitely fits with that kind of transformation over time we see, because even when she goes back, she's still got that same sensibility she's still like correcting them as to how to hang up their laundry but there's a little bit of a difference to her tone and manner there that kind of show that shift and that presentation to some extent and that that sense that 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 motivation is still there at the start but it's changed and it's developed yes she's still asking well who's doing my laundry while i'm away not meaning her bed sheets meaning her job of getting the laundry done and, you know, she accepts it when she's told that it's her sister's, but she still has comments about making sure it's done right. Yeah, she still cares about getting the job done properly like that. And that's still that motivating factor to her. That's still that that sense of that responsibility you're describing. That, yeah. Now, there is a, there's always a sense to me in versions of this story where, They have to have a change very quickly in terms of how these characters feel about one another, the beauty and the beast. We'll talk more about other versions, I'm sure. It's easier to rush through the storytelling part of a transformation like that if you have a musical number. Yes. Which they don't have in this. So some of it seems like, is there a middle of this movie that you just decided not to show us? You talk talk about not having a musical number. This is a film that will intentionally drop its background score out just to reinforce things. This has anti-musical numbers where the silence is the powerful force of uncertainty and confusion and unreality. Yes, you're right. That's I was talking earlier about that, uh, the scenes where she has just arrived at the castle and she's slowly moving through these surreal hallways and there's this haunting 
kind of ethereal score behind her. And then she tries to leave, she, she escapes and faints, and the beast carries her down that same exact route, but it's silent when he's carrying her. That's a wonderful contrast. For her, magic, wonder, for him, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but there's something to that kind of like, yeah. this is his world, it doesn't have the same impact. He is apparently in love with her as soon as she arrives. And she, with unlikely rapidity, kind of falls in love with him, though for the longest time, she resists and declines his nightly proposal of marriage. He meets her at seven o'clock when she's having dinner every night and asks if uh, she'll marry him, and she says no. But her declining his offer of marriage softens each time, and she really does grow to care for him and really does uh, grow fond of him, but really doesn't want to marry him. And in some ways, the fact that they drag that out the way they do seems odd. The repetition is good, it's powerful, it's mythological in its form and its structure, but there are times when you're just like, ah, they're doing this again. Yeah, they keep going. Nah. <laughs> There's something almost episodic at times about how this plays out. There's these nice little chunks of the, the scene and the no and the scene and the no. <laughs> And even there, there is that sense of the responsibility versus duty, where she she recognizes that she is having a positive influence on the beast and, and on this castle, yet she can't agree to marry him because that would mean giving up on the idea of being reunited with her father at some point. And her father is back home, essentially getting sick and dying, mostly of grief because his daughter went to be punished in his place. Yeah, the, the whole my dad is dying thing is a little odd because it's it's kind of used as a ticking clock, but it's also it, it's another instance where the pace is a little weird. Although they almost kind of explain that as well, because there's this entire moment where the beast explains that uh, in your world, it is day, but here it is night that like they are not in France yeah, that's right. He said, night and day do not work the same way in my realm. Yeah, I'm wondering, it's like, does, is, is he on the other side of the planet? <laughs> I think it goes beyond that. I oh, okay. think he's so, in a, so a special say- magical So you're place. saying that he's not in the closest thing, the closest landmass to opposite side of France in, on the Earth, which is in New Zealand. The Beast uh, is not in New Zealand. I can't say that he's definitely not, but I didn't okay. see any hobbits, so okay. probably not. <laughs> probably not, then. <laughs> and even there, Belle is kind of stuck between these two, these two men. Her father's dying of grief because she's gone in his place. The Beast keeps saying, well, if you leave, I'll die of grief. She is really put in an untenable position. And it's only when she gains the trust of the Beast who... Trust her to come back, so he lets her go home for a uh, a week. They kind of, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of Chekhov's grief, and someone's going <laughs> to get shot by the third act by it. It's kind of a, a strange and interesting resolution to all of this too, in that there is no confrontation between the handsome young man who wanted to marry Belle at the beginning and the Beast. The handsome young man and Belle's brother, they do have an idea we should go and confront this beast and kill it, but they're mostly interested in the treasure that they understand the beast has in this special uh, treasure pavilion. And 
they are when they finally show up they well they don't know that bell has magically returned to the castle as well they think she's back home but they go right for this treasure pavilion that they heard about and try to break in and, and rob it yeah. and it's the it's the very loud uh smashing of glass that alerts very smug living statues that we've seen around to decide to uh shoot him well it's a pavilion of diana and the centerpiece inside surrounded by all this treasure is a statue of Diana. Oh. Diana's a huntress. Oh, good point. She has a very powerful bow and very sharp arrows and uses one on Avenant, the young man who wanted to marry Belle, who's the first into the uh, the pavilion when they break in through the glass roof. And uh, yeah, she shoots him. Who And Avenant is introduced, this, this male suitor, as this man practicing his sharpshooting and seeming to be very proud of his hunting prowess <laughs> meanwhile the beast literally like gives off smoke of shame and is terrified by the fact that he goes out and hunts down an animal like a beast each night and is distraught by this so uh, the idea of getting literally punished by a hunter for excessive pride in your hunting while the other guy is ashamed of it is an interesting <laughs> turn in that sense too and we're talking about uh, avenant and his archery that he's practicing with uh bell's brother at the beginning i don't think we really have any kind of a save the cat moment we do have an almost kill the dog moment yeah we though. do have an almost shoot the dog moment which is very <laughs> very not good for him yeah so th that shows us at the very beginning that these two young men they are not terribly responsible they are not terribly safe they are not terribly sensible and this catches up with them at the end. Bell's brother, kind of the... He's not really a henchman to Avanon. He's this... this His friend, he's he's very active in the story, but he is kind of non-consequential in other ways. He is almost more chorus-like, because he always gets the last little comment or quip to punctuate a scene sometimes. Yeah, he's the not-quite-as-tall, not-quite-as-handsome member of this this duo but he's he's usually always got a quip always at somebody else's expense and he is also somebody who runs up debts and that's one thing i can do without in this movie they there is a moneylender character who is a stereotypical jewish moneylender like from a, a bad production of the merchant of venice it's not surprising to see it in this movie it's it's disappointing though yeah it's it's disappointing to see it here but uh, and but that's another thing that's happening while Bell is held captive, held very luxurious captivity in the Beast's castle. Is that not only is her father at home dying, taking a long time to do so, <laughs> but also all of his stuff is being repossessed by this moneylender and the moneylender's henchmen. Until Bell shows up in a in a beautiful dress, saying, "Don't worry, I'm fine." I'll cry some diamonds and I gotta go back in a week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talk about another a kind of alchemical bit of uh, symbolism, the tears becoming diamonds. Oh, like yeah. she returns from this, this sun prince's castle. And I don't want to tread on any stories, but there's so many Orpheus and Underworld connections, too, that are in there as well, especially with uh, relations to diamonds and the gemstones and such, so... Yeah. Well, we mentioned what happens at the end to Avenant, that he's shot by this statue of Diana. And meanwhile, 
Belle has magically returned to the castle to find that the beast really is dying of grief because she's a day late, apparently. <laughs> There's there there are some big red flags with the way the beast treats things <laughs> yeah, that are yeah, this like is not necessarily healthy. Not not necessarily healthy in the long run. Uh-huh. But this is it's your fairy tale logic. I can cut some slack for that. There's literally but. an opening crawl telling everybody to treat this like you're a kid and cut it some slack. Yes, like kids will believe the most ridiculous things, and here's one of them. Here's a story. But as he dies, Avenant changes into a beast. Meanwhile, the beast, who's off with uh, Bell, about to die, turns back into a human. And the excellent example of dual casting of one actor comes through, because it's the same guy. Jean Marais plays the Beast, and plays Avenant, and plays the handsome prince that the Beast transforms into. Very different wardrobe, different haircut, Somehow, same actor. Somehow looks sillier as a guy in that outfit. <laughs> but they do acknowledge that Wow, you look like my brother's friend who wanted to marry me. Was he handsome? Well, yes. Did he love you? Yes. Um, did you want to marry him? I, this this weird conversation about, oh, tell me about this other guy. Yeah, it, that's, it, it, that, that's a really weird way to end it. And I gotta admit, the talking about the Beast as a different person is kind of awkward there. It's like... You are him, right? Otherwise, none of that relationship we just established means much. You're a brand new guy she's gonna have to get to know. And yet Belle seems to be pretty happy with with this deal as it's turning out. You look just like the handsome guy who I was tempted to marry earlier. And yet you're a magical prince, and I've gotten to know you, and you seem like a good guy. And now you're telling me that we're going to go off to your real magical kingdom, and my father can come too, and my, my sisters can come, and they can work for me. Yeah, this sounds like a pretty good deal, Belle seems to be thinking. I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, this is like, how do you take all the positive traits of your suitors and move them into one person? This is like some <laughs> sort of personality Tower of Hanoi going on, and it's bugging me. <laughs> Uh, I don't, you know, I don't even know if they mentioned Ludovic, his, uh, her, her brother, who was with Avenant trying to break into the pavilion. He no. wasn't shot by Diana, as far as we saw. No, he just kind of gets to watch a failed robbery attempt and, I guess, run away to avoid being accused as I uh, an accomplice? Yes, or maybe the, the new magical prince, formerly the Beast, is going to be merciful and allow him to come as well. Two words, head butler. So the story has, you know, the structure that, that you've probably seen in other versions of this story, but it has little bits of emphasis that bring out what these filmmakers were, were really trying to get at. It is surrealist, and it pulls so much of the uncertainty that that can help provide into space to really interpret and see what this story is like. It, it, it doesn't bury its themes under a style it uses the style to really amplify those themes very hard these the repetition the uncertainty the 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 two worlds being so different 
means that the the combination and that collision and that relationship and the learning the person and understanding and the changes that happen all come through a little stronger instead of being as cohesive in some weird way, but it's still a cohesive presentation. And it's really key that you mention surrealism because there are surrealist films. There are some weird surrealist short films. There are the films of Louis Buñuel, which are, I'd say, surreal start to finish. This, I would say that this is not a surrealist movie. But this is a movie that uses surrealism as part of its palette, as part of its toolbox. Some of the the movie is just pure, straightforward naturalism. This is the courtyard of a home of people who used to be rich and are now down on their luck. And yet it uses surrealism when it's depicting things like the beast and his home and his powers. And it uses surrealism in the sense of some something very, very dreamlike depicted in a very concrete, very naturalistic way. And I think that goes to a lot of Jean Cocteau's background and his poetry and the other artists that he, he knew is that leading to the fact that he could use surrealism without needing to rely on it for the entire thing beginning to end. It evoked that kind of feeling when the story required it. Yeah, it's using, this is weird to say, it's a black and white film, but it uses its uh, its tone and its surrealism like color to give that sort of emphasis. So since we're talking about Cocteau's toolbox in this, we need to acknowledge some of the cool little cinematic tricks that he used. Yes. It's a good effect. Do you have a favorite? Oh, Okay, there's two that really come to mind, and ironically, neither of them take place in the castle. One is a really nice pan shot early on, where we watch the sisters being awful and getting into their footmen carried uh, basket seats. But we watch it, and it zooms out to see that you're looking through the windows of one sisters to watch the other sister get ready, and it makes this weird, like just unpleasantness to some extent about realizing how confined and artificial and thin and flimsy this feels. Ah, It's like they're closing themselves off from the world in their effort to present themselves as wealthy. Absolutely. It also, this also does have the best jump cut I've ever seen, which is when the sisters try to take gems and jewels from Belle, who kind of does this really snarkily in the best way, handing it to them. And the sisters, who are so excited to have this, drop it. And when it hits the floor, it changes back into the jewels. And it's done with the smoothest jump cut I've ever seen. It hits, and I'm just like, it's there again. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was a good one. Oh, I know the sequence you're talking about. What was snarky about that? Oh, the, oh, it'll look great on you. Like, she's almost putting on the affect that they tried to give her before. That's interesting. I didn't get that at all. I thought she was being sincere. Oh. I thought that was another example of emphasizing the generosity of Belle compared to the avarice of her sisters. Early on in, in the movie, the, the beast has given her has given Belle this necklace of big pearls fastened with big elaborate brooches. 
and actually he conjures it as an excuse to come <laughs> yes, see her. Right. In the what most, are you like, doing here? Like, I was um uh, I was just bringing you a present that I just materialized in my hand. And when one of her sisters admires it later on, when Belle's back home, Belle offers it to the sister. That's funny. I took that as completely sincere. I'm gonna have to rewatch that. I took it. I took it as her. Being aware of their tricks finally and playing the game back a little. Yeah, if, if I think if she were wise to their tricks, she would not have let them steal the golden key to the treasure pavilion. Probably not. You're right. But yeah, this wonderful little cut as she hands the 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 jewelry to her sister, it turns into this smoking piece of trash. But then when her sister lets it go, like you say, with that wonderful jump cut, it turns back into the jewelry, and it, only Belle can wear it. It falls as the trash, and it jump cuts the moment it hits the, the ground and it's it's using the momentum of falling pearls to literally blend that jump cut because they'll fall into this wonderful little nested pile with this this rigidity and this structure of spherical objects automatically nesting and it's like Vroom! and i'm like oh that was a good one that was a nice use of a simple the simplest editing technique of just cutting from scene to scene but it's so smooth that it adds to the magic. Another nice, simple technique that's used to good effect throughout this movie is just running film backwards. We've got candelabras with candles that magically light themselves. Well, yeah, they did that by having burning candelabras and blowing them out from off stage or from off uh, from off screen, and then running it backwards so they imag- they magically burst into flame. When he conjures that necklace. We watching we watch his hand, and it doesn't just appear, but the pieces sort of flow into his hand, scurrying to him from from across the the table and across the room. And it's clear if you watch it, it's just he had a handful of loose pearls and things, and let them go, and they spilled all over the place. And they run that backwards. It looks like they're magically assembling themselves in his hands. There are a few places like that where. They just use that clever reverse uh, trick to make something just seem weirdly magical in a way that's believable in context. It doesn't take me out of the movie to stop and think, oh, they're running the film backwards. And there's some wonderful instances of under and overclocking their camera to speed things up or slow it down, making moving through the castle have this almost moon gravity weightlessness as she flows from space to space, or even, I think, pulling her along on a dolly at one point, so she's never stepping and her dress never moves with it. They do that, but there's also a couple instances where they, like, speed up just a little, so an appearance or a a arrival or something just has this extra snappy motion of, I'm magically here. Like, she comes into a room via teleportation, and it's not just arriving through a portal it's this sped up thump it almost has the sound effect pop you expect in a modern like post x-men and uh teleportation power effect but it has that kind of snappiness just because they speed up the film just a little so it's unrealistic in that perfect way yeah it's like they they shot the she teleports uh onto the her her bed in the castle it's not that they just shot the bed without her there and then shot the bed with her there. It's like when they were starting the shot of her her there, the director told her, hop a little bit. And then they used that slightly speed it up. Oh, yeah. I it's love a, it. It's only boop. 
And as far as the working with with time and slow motion, that's what really struck me about those first scenes of this movie that I ever saw. We had already seen her father come into this castle and go down the entry hallway with the arms holding the candelabras. And that was creepy enough. But when she arrives, then suddenly it's this you know, overcranked so that it's in slow motion. And it goes from there to that hallway where they have, as you said, her being pulled along uh, on a dolly, evidently. And this breeze blowing the big sheer curtains, but doing so in a way that seems out of sync with physics and gravity because of the way they've changed the timing on the film. It's not complex. It's not advanced. It's just really carefully and well-selected. And probably it helps that one scene where they're pulling her along that hallway. I think Josette Day was honestly a little nervous about that because that eyes, that wide-eyed look works for both I'm on an unsteady dolly being pulled along towards a camera that's being cranked at the wrong speed as it does. Whoa, magical castle. <laughs> yes. Has, has a kind of like, uh, that worked out well. She looks a little terrified in a good way there. Yes, this kind of wonder and fear and is this really safe? Yeah, that, <laughs> that works in both situations. It works in both situations. <laughs> So I think we are, uh, we're coming up towards our final questions. I think so. So, yeah, a movie, screen or no screen. <sighs> I want to say screen. And I'm going to say screen, but with a caveat. Being a, a film of this era, it is a little bit harder to deal with the pacing, I found. There were some scenes I felt myself drifting back and forth a little on. And so it is... It's not a movie you can put on lightly. It's a movie that if you're going to watch it, which I suggest, you make sure you're ready for it. Sit down with a beverage, sit down with a thing, get ready for something that you're supposed to mentally put in the energy to really chew. Because for being a thing that has this light, well-known story, this fantastical nature and such, I don't feel like you can just let this thing roll. I think I understand what you mean about that. I would agree. I would recommend that people screen this, but recognize what it is and isn't. In some ways, it feels like a movie from an earlier time than it is, because it is not, for all of its interesting use of simple camera tricks and the like, it's not a tremendously sophisticated movie. It was not made by a director who was first and foremost a filmmaker. He was a poet and artist and did lots of things, and this is one of the visions he wanted to to bring about. He made this movie, but it wasn't backed up with tons of technical experience and knowledge in how to make a movie, or even how to write and pace a movie. So you're right. It's slow at times. You're going to notice a boom mic at the top of the frame occasionally, things like that. It's It's a bit clumsy. In some ways... The fact that it can be that clumsy and still draw me in and still be as endearing to me as it is, is one of its achievements. But yeah, it, I would say screen it, but know what you're in for. Our next yeah. is another one that's really hard to do. Yeah, it's especially hard for something like this that is an adaptation. It's an adaptation of that uh, 18th century fairy tale. Uh, but our usual question is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Now, I can't necessarily imagine a revival yeah what is that 
I don't even know what that is. I mean, do we really want to see what happens when Belle and her prince arrive in his uh, magical kingdom after flying there in a flight that begins with them apparently jumping to the ground and then having the film reversed? Yeah, it's very much Superman takes Lois Lane on a trip at the very end. So <laughs> you're right. Um, I um, so I can't think of a sequel that no. I would want unless Avenant actually isn't dead and he now has to haunt the castle. But now he looked pretty dead to me when he turned into the beast. Although literally, just a story of him like you're a giant cat now. The magical guy <laughs> left, so the entire place crumbled. <laughs> it's a very short sequel. And uh, it's literally just like a giant cat with a broom having to clean this place up now. And <laughs> you've got a whole thing there. I can see that working, but not quite. I mean, I suppose there could be a prequel about how the beast was cursed and all that, but I don't really oh, there's, a, that. there's a political financial intrigue story about how, his, about how her dad lost so much money in the shipping industry. Yeah, he lost one ship to a storm, and by the time the next one came in, uh, his creditors had taken all of its cargo, and he was still left with nothing. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Reboot is interesting, because there's a lot of ways to interpret the story of Beauty and the Beast, and there's a lot of variations and versions internationally, stories that are similar from this kind of same root. And I almost suggest the idea of revival, just because the version so many people know the the popularized versions of this don't have some of the wonderful uncertainty and magic and oddity that this has so i kind of wish that like using this as a framework at least to inspire your interpretation of beauty and the beast could be great because you can get something a bit out of it this will keep you from retelling it the way it's gotten retold too many times because this thing really does shake it up and suggest more influences that you can pull in or places you can change it it keeps it fresh and so maybe i'm suggesting reboot because of that this one makes me think a modern day version with a with a a bell that lives in the now and a beast who's kingdom is built in an internet and digital age would work more so than the other versions I've ever seen just because this one presents a more a, a more fanciful story but that kind of gives it openness to interpretation in ways that otherwise I haven't seen well there are some modern more modern versions that I wouldn't say are versions of this story but are ostensibly inspired by it there's the um I think it was late 80s, early 90s, a George R. R. Martin TV series with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman, Beauty and the Beast, loosely inspired by the general concept of the French fairy tale, but set in modern day New York. And, and then I think there was like a, an attempt to be a reboot of that series in the early teens. But as far as real adaptations of this story, I'm familiar with three of them, I'd say. There's this version from the 1940s. There is a really very good TV movie starring George C. Scott oh. as the Beast. And and I I wouldn't mind seeing that again if I can get my hands on it, having having seen this again now. And then of course there's the Disney musical version. 
Of course. And it seems to me that each one of these tells the story and brings to it a different kind of seasoning. With Cocteau's version, it was French surrealism. With the George C. Scott version, that was kind of a 70s psychological drama. Ooh. And, and that was, was really interesting. It was, it was a little bit more of a horror story, but like a lot of 70s horror stuff, it was fundamentally a psychological story. And then, of course, the Disney version brings music as its seasoning. So the idea of another version with some other unique element to bring to it, to add to the storytelling, and the possibility of doing that in a modern setting like you were describing, I think there might be something there. Oh, yeah. If we're going to talk about reboots, it is kind of good to note that the 2014 French film of the same name took a lot of inspiration for its setup and its framing from this version. Oh, I'm not it's, familiar with its that. Its reviews were middling, but it did take more of the structure, especially of the of Bell's home life and such, from this, and a lot more inspiration from the John Cocteau version in its design. And certainly the Disney version owes a lot to Cocteau. Oh, absolutely. In the, the magical, again, not haunted, but magic castle where it was creepy and surreal in the Cocteau version, it becomes Disney cartoon in the Disney version. And that's not necessarily a, a value judgment. They're just different styles. But clearly, a lot of exactly what they were depicting and how seemed to me very influenced by Cocteau. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. I could see extending that influence further and, and doing that in a newer movie. Oh, yeah. So I'd, I'd be up for uh, for a new version of this, uh, either a period piece or, or in a modern setting. There's always going to be versions of Beauty and the Beast, I think. There's always going to be, even if it's not even called Beauty and the Beast, there's always going to be versions of this story. And I'm, that, that makes me happy. Well, you mentioned a modern internet age. How about one in which the... Beast's magical realm is some hidden bit of virtual reality. Oh. And the beast that this man has been turned into is he's been turned into a software agent. Oh, he's been digitized. Kind. He cannot escape this, and he is terribly lonely and falls in love with this girl who is uh, imprisoned there in payment for some transgression of her father's and eventually trusts her enough to let her out. And, and yet it's, it we're as, as with so many stories from the cyberpunk movement forward, we're replacing magic with technology, but maybe that would open the door to some new kind of seasoning to bring to the story. Oh, it absolutely would. I mean, you could do some very interesting things as she kind of, learns to exist within this realm that this other that this this other figure knows so well you could play with uh with who's what you could have some fun with comparing this technological realm of a virtual world with a real one her family lived in very clear poverty in this one so maybe in the real world she's going into things are more run down people aren't dressed as nicely but when you go into the virtual world they're in 
in something that shows modern mystique they've got suits they're they're using fanciful items you could even play with gender you could make him a guy you could put like, the the beast character more of a girl and i'm just <sighs> developing the matrix i'm sorry oh but at least then <laughs> when avenant gets shot he can kind of dodge oh the yeah, arrow, yeah right? absolutely that would be very cool <laughs> Oh, what did I just yeah. do? What did I just do? <laughs> We're creating one more Gnostic allegory movie for someone to make. Hey! <laughs> well, I think we've we, we've run that to ground then. I think we have. <laughs> so I think that it is going to uh, to wrap it up for this episode. I'm I'm glad I got a chance to show you this movie, and I'm glad it was something that usually I'm happy when you come to a movie without knowing anything about it. I'm glad that you had some sense of this movie and had some anticipation for seeing it. Oh yeah, I'm 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 delighted we got to watch this one. <laughs> well, that's great. So this is the uh, the second of our Halloween episodes. I hope everybody has had a great October and I hope you go on to have a really fun and safe Halloween. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me most places as by Matthew Porter. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com. You can find me on YouTube as by Matthew Porter, on uh, Twitch uh, as by Matthew Porter, uh, on Twitter by Matthew Porter. Uh, you can you know, find me most places under that name. And how about you, Ian? Where can people find you? I can be found most places as item crafting, be that on Twitter or on itemcrafting.com or on Twitch as item crafting live. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast, and you can also find us online at immproject.com, and there you will find all of our back episodes, including all of our old uh, Halloween episodes, and you can also find a link to our Discord, a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much for anybody who can support us there, and there is additional audio content if you uh, are a Patreon supporter. And you'll also find a link to our store if you like to buy interesting coffee mugs, t-shirts, notebooks, uh, all kinds of fun things there. And we do plan to have some new designs up there soon for the holidays. But in the meantime, we will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales uh, of media from the 20th century. And thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for uh, downloading. And thanks very much for telling your friends about the podcast. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>